All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. If you're taking notes, that is a verse you need to remember. Psalm 16, 11. I am one of those guys that love to highlight and underline. Uh, this verse is transformational if we grab it mentally and it digs down deep into our hearts. Here we go. Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what Jeffrey Johnson read this morning. That's what I'm reading. I, I want you guys to spend time thinking deeply on that verse because that will transform your life. If you believe that in the presence of God is the fullness of joy, you won't pursue counterfeits that the world throws your way. In your presence, fullness of joy. So uh, this morning we're talking, um, we had our series on marriage. We've done that the last two weeks. Uh, we talked about how marriage is a covenant um, before God and with one another, how it's uh, more personal and intimate than a contract, and yet more binding uh, than just mere friendship. Um, we talked about how in marriage there are commitments, a commitment to humility, where you're considering your spouse better than yourself, more significant than yourself. Um, and, and so the, an awesome relationship would be a wife who is looking out for her husband and a husband who is looking out for his wife's needs. Uh, we talked about how we're also committed to each other's holiness. Um, so uh, with Julianne and myself, I, I want to be more and more like Christ, and she needs to help me on that journey. And, and then we talked that that's a lifelong journey, and so that leads that marriage is for companionship. We, we want to uh, be best friends as we walk together on this mission God's called us to. And, and we gave a, a little uh, side note that when you're looking to, uh, to date somebody, to get to know somebody, um, attraction, while it's important, it better not be more important than friendship. You have to be able to get along. And then uh, we talked about the capabilities that marriage offers. Uh, the capability to be honest with your spouse. Right? Like you could go in and do an eight-hour shift, 40 hours a week, and people think something of you, but your wife knows you better. Um, and, and so they're able to speak truth into your life. They can see when you're patient and impatient. They can see if you're generous or greedy. They can see if you're joyful or bitter. And a wife and a husband need to help each other out with that, being honest with each other. And then we talked about how in the marriage relationship is the opportunity to show love. Julianne knows me better, therefore she can love me more than anybody else in the room. Despite all of my shortcomings, she still loves me. That's a power that only happens in marriage. And then we talked about the glue that holds honesty and love together is grace. And so obviously the ideal marriage is a husband and wife who are quick to repent. When you mess up, you're saying, hey, I'm sorry, I'm not doing that anymore. And then you have the other spouse that's quick to forgive. Awesome, I'm not holding that against you. Let's go. Let's keep pursuing Christ together. And, and so we talked about that the last two weeks. And then I want to follow that up with physical intimacy today. Right? We're, we're going to talk about sex because in God's design, sex uh, goes through the vehicle of marriage. That's how you, you go somewhere with this. And so there's a lot of things that the world has to offer on this topic. Right? And, and so um, yesterday, Mike, we moved... 
uh, Cooper, moved a, a swing set for Coach Cooper. We go to the gas station and uh, we go to check out. I've got my Mountain Dew, I'm ready to roll. And then I noticed to the right, because this is our sermon topic, all of the pills. Right, we got Rhino 7, Rhino 12, we've got White Panther, uh, we got Bald Eagle. Um, I'm not even sure what all this for, but it's promising something that it cannot deliver. So I had Mike, uh, hey Mike, I need you to go ahead and take a picture of this. So I gave him my phone. I'm, I'm covering the, the cashier. I don't want her to see him take a picture. I definitely don't want to take a picture. Mike's not, I'm looking like, oh my gosh, this is promising something it cannot deliver. Right? You see this in movies. You see this with friends. Um, I promise that, hey, you will be satisfied. You will be happy if this is your story. If you could hook up with this girl or this guy, if you tried this technique and did, and, and all of this is garbage compared to the joy that you find in Christ. And so that's why we start with Psalm 1611. If you are not satisfied with God, you'll never be satisfied with anything the world has to offer, including the gift God has given called sex. So that's where we're going. Um, listen, if you think it's awkward for you, think about me. I've got my mother-in-law, my mom, and my daughters, and my wife in the room. <laughs> but at the same time, this is super important. Because what's happened is Satan has tried to steal what God has given as a good gift. And, and what happens is it gets ugly when we try to pursue sex outside of the design God has set. So I have this picture of a house. And you look at the picture, um, and the first thing you notice is what? It's fallen, right? The foundation is awful. Now, what happens if Julianne and I look at this? Oh, we finally got our oceanfront property. Um, and the first thing we do is say, you know what? I don't like yellow on the front of our house. We're going to paint it. That's the biggest thing. We're going to paint this, and it'll look nice. That's a lot of times how we approach sex. We say, hey, if I just had better sex, if I just did this, if I just had that, if I just, I'd be happy. Your life is crumbling. You're painting outside walls, and yet the house is tumbling down because you've mistaken sex for something only God can provide. Right? It's the foundation. God is the source of joy. If you do not find your joy in God, you will find it in no place else. So, with that said, let's dig in. Number one, glorify God through satisfaction in Christ. Satisfaction in Christ. That means your joy, your purpose, your pleasure is found in Christ. Now listen, I know that sounds foreign to a lot of people in the room. But I also know this from experience, that's the only source of joy that never dries up. Dissatisfaction in life is near the root of all kinds of sin. One guy put it this way, why do people cheat on their spouse, abuse drugs, alcohol, mindlessly binge watch ridiculous amounts of television, scroll endlessly on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, steal, do all sorts of evil? All these things and more happen because people cannot find happiness. At the root of our dissatisfaction is a never-ending thirst that nothing in this world can satisfy. We've been duped into thinking that a better job, more money, cooler friends, another spouse, a new life is really what we need, and if we can't obtain any of these things, and when they leave us dissatisfied, we resort to drug abuse, sexual immorality, or senseless entertainment. Every person in the world wants to know what will make him or her happy. Isn't that true? We're all desperately seeking for the person, place, or thing that will meet our expectation, needs, and wants. But what will truly satisfy our hearts is found only in Christ. 
Um, there's a guy, his name is S. Period o. Period. He's a Britain rapper. I, I want to show you just the lyrics of his first line in his song. Andrew, if you could hit play. Did you catch the conclusion of the first line of his lyrics? You think this will satisfy, but I can tell you, closed eyes, blindfolded, only God will satisfy. That's biblical. And this is my fear. My fear is, especially for the younger guys in the room, you're going to pursue things that you think will satisfy, only to understand how unsatisfying it is. I'm trying to save you heartache and regret by saying, hey, God will satisfy. So, you go to John chapter 4. You have the, it's entitled, The Woman at the Well, right? The disciples are walking through, they're going through Samaria, which wouldn't happen. It's breaking culture uh, with Jesus and his guys. He doesn't care. Jesus came and, and did everything radically different than what was expected. He's walking through, and sure enough, there's this woman at this well. The disciples go into town to buy some food. Jesus is alone, sitting at the well asks for this lady to drop her bucket and grab him a cup of water. And, and then he says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water. And, and so check out, uh, check out just how this goes. In John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, right? So, so imagine you have awesome water in your hand. It's cool. It's refreshing. But he's saying, hey, if you drink this, you'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give in him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I think that's interesting, but then do you know what Jesus asked her next? Go to John chapter 4. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Right, go get your husband. I wonder how she reacted. She answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Like there's no hiding in the presence of Christ. And he just got done saying, hey, if you drink this water, you'll be thirsty again. I don't think it's an accident that he goes right then to her relationships. You see, she was looking for in a man what could only be satisfied in a Savior. And what Jesus is doing is saying, hey, you're right, your husband didn't work, and the guy you're with now is not working. He's pointing her back to himself, saying, only I will satisfy. And so they go on and have this conversation, and, and this is how it ends. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. Right? The Son of God is coming, our Rescuer, our Savior. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Isn't that awesome? You see, all of us have a thirst for something. Could be a thirst for power, could be a thirst for success, could be a thirst for getting out of Covington, success on a basketball court, a football field, in a job. None of that lasts. You'll be thirsty again. You have to run to Christ. So my plea to you, glorify God by being satisfied in Christ. Later on in John chapter 6, 
there's a, there's a huge crowd, right? It says that there are 5,000 men. So they're with their family, they're, they're with their wives, they're with their kids, and, and Jesus has a box lunch, right? I'm trying to think. I don't know what, what's on the menu for Monday. We'll say it's walking taco, right? I know walking taco is coming Tuesday. So you get a bag of Doritos, some meat, some cheese, and a milk. Let's say, Phil, you come into the lunch line and you say, hey, Brown, everybody's starving. This is all we got. I got a little bag of Doritos and some meat. I say, all right, Phil, have everybody sit down, divide them up. We're going to feed them all. And what happens is Phil takes his tray around and people start grabbing chips and putting some taco meat on their, their chips and some cheese. And, and he just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. And at the end, he has plenty left over and everybody's stuffed. That's what Jesus just did with the crowd. And then he says, hey, I am the bread of life. Anyone who comes to me will never hunger again. And, and what he's saying to the disciples and to the people, hey, just like your stomachs are always hungry for food, but you're never satisfied, there's something greater than even great food. It's me. Come to me and you will never hunger again. John 6, 35, Jesus said to him, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So there's some of you here this morning that are starving. And you're trying to be satisfied by everything else except God. Then you go back to Psalm 1611. In the presence of God is the fullness of joy. At His right hand, pleasures forevermore. That's a promise. That's a guarantee. That's what happens to those who are found in Christ. We go on. And I, I use the example. You guys know the uh, Philippians um, 413 passage. A lot of guys, you see it with sports. Uh, Tim Tebow had it under his eyes. Uh, you'll see it in locker rooms. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? A lot of times that verse is applied wrong. So uh, if you quote that and then think that will guarantee you winning a basketball game, that's not what the text is about, right? If you have that as your, your slogan for a season, it doesn't mean you're going to have a winning season, Paul is talking about being content. And there was this guy, Tony Bennett, was the coach of the Virginia Cavaliers, right? Tony's known for a huge loss last year. Now, you guys that, that don't know college basketball, there's this huge tournament called March Madness. There's 68 teams that play in it. And what happens are the best four teams in the country get one seeds. And the worst teams in the tournament get 16 seeds. And in the history of the tournament, there's only been one time a 16 seed has beaten a one seed. And that was his team. He was the one seed. And they got beat last year by a team called UMBC. I couldn't tell you what UMBC stands for, right? They're not very good. But they beat the one seed. And I love his quote. I put it out on, on Twitter. And, and he was talking about how you've got to have something that anchors your soul more than winning and losing basketball games. Here's a guy that is known for his loss. It's one of the greatest losses in college basketball history. And he's like, it's not a big deal when you have the right perspective. And he says, for me, it's my faith in Christ. I've learned to be content with a win or a loss. That's what the, the passage is coming to, uh, to be content. And so Paul was saying when he wrote it to the, the church in Philippi, he's like, hey, I can be shipwrecked adrift at sea, or I could be hanging out eating great food with my friends. And either way, I'm going to be content because of Christ. Now, the reason that is important is because you will have to find contentment when sex is great in marriage and when you're striving for purity out of marriage and within marriage. Your contentment is in Christ, not in a relationship. That's very, very important. That's why we started out right now with this. And so I want you to do a heart check. 
I want you to do a heart check. What satisfies your soul? Think about it. What brings you the most joy? Where do you find your purpose? What makes you angry when it doesn't happen? That's what you're running to. And so my plea to you, and something that I have to remind myself of daily, my joy will be found in Jesus. And when that happens, I lack nothing, and I have everything my heart desires. All right. Point number two. Glorify God through sex in marriage. Glorify God through sex in marriage. Um, first off, I want us to see this is God's design. In Genesis chapter 2, you have Adam and Eve, and check out, check out what happens. Genesis chapter 2 says, In the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, made into a woman, and brought her to the man, then the man said, At last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of a man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, real quick, we understand what that means physically, but that's also speaking emotionally and spiritually. There's an openness that happens in marriage that only happens in marriage. And, and so I want to see this is God's design. And, and there's a quote that I want to share. Sex is for whole life self-giving. However, the simple heart wants to use sex for selfish reasons. Right? That's why pornography is a booming business. You can have an experience without any commitment, right? That's selfishness. You can use people when girls and guys are objectified for how their body looks. That is selfishness. So all of this, self, all of this because of that, the Bible puts in many rules around it to direct us to use it in the right way. And so what you see in Scripture, there's about six purposes for sex that you find in the Bible. Number one, children. In Genesis 1.28, it says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was the mandate. Hey, Adam and Eve, set on some music. Get it on. We got to get busy. Right? That's the mandate. How cool is that? So, for, and then uh, you, you see there's, there's, a, there's a verse that says, Hey, children are a blessing from the Lord, a heritage from the Lord. Blessed is he who fills his quiver with them. And so it's talking about bow and arrows. You reach back and you always have an arrow. That's the blessing of children. Like, that's a great thing. Right? And if you haven't had that talk with your kids, and if you need that talk, you need to talk to a parent. Or, or this is awesome. This is where the church comes in. You need to talk to a man or woman who loves Christ. Because there's a lot of people that will give you a bias on. And, and that's one thing I also want us to, to, to knock out right now. Right? When we say, hey, go talk to your parents, uh, sometimes they don't give us the best advice. But what I want you to do is find someone who loves Jesus and knows this and will apply it to your life. Because there's a lot of garbage out there. Be careful who you talk to about having children and, and the whole sex talk. Number two. Sex was given for pleasure. Song of Solomon. Uh, we're going to read this in a little bit. And as I was preparing for this message, like I was blushing at reading some of the text in there. And so we're going to do the, uh, the PG version of Song of Solomon. All right. Um, uh, a third purpose of sex in marriage is oneness. Right. The, the two will become one flesh. And we talked a little bit about that. That's not just physical. 
That is spiritually and emotional. Um, the, the text in there in, in Hebrew is like a mingling of souls, as Matt Chandler would put it. Uh, another pastor from Texas, he's like, hey, this is a big deal. Right? The, the two are becoming one. Um, one person put it this way, sex should be a physical picture of a deeper spiritual reality. We have come together in Christ, called by Him, creating a family, serving Him. He's living in both of us through His Spirit. We are now expressing physically the spiritual truth that He has created, that we are no longer two, but one. All right, so you get that idea of oneness. Knowledge. And we talked about this. They were both naked and unashamed. What happens after the fall? What do they realize? They're both naked. we got to get close. And, and so Satan is wrecking havoc on marriage and sex. Right? Number five, protection. First Corinthians hits on this. Um, how, how you don't withhold uh, the, the conjugal rights of a husband or a wife. Um, and, and you guys can, can read that on your own. It's in First Corinthians chapter 7. Um, but there's some protection to that. Uh, and, and then number six, comfort. Song of Song, Solomon says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That's pretty comforting. You can have a bad day and go home to your spouse and look at that, and like, that is a comfort. She's sticking with me. He's going to stick by my side no matter how bad work gets, whatever else is going on. So, number one, glorify God through sex and marriage because it's God's design. Number two, it's our delight. Song of Solomon 1, verse 2. So, in the first verse of Song of Solomon, he introduces, hey, this is Solomon. I'm writing this. It's a love song to his wife. Number two, he doesn't mess around. Right? He gets right to the point. Let him kiss me with kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Right? So he's, he's writing this poem, and he uses his wife's speech first, and so she's speaking. Let him kiss me with kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Um, we've got this thing with, with our girls, and, and the little two especially. We tuck them in at night, and I'll give them a kiss on the cheek or the forehead. Right? And every once in a while, they'll try to sneak in and kiss me on the lips. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. These lips are only for mama. Right? And so I'll give Julianne a kiss on the lips, and they act like they're grossed out. But I'm trying to instill something here. Right? I'm trying to say, hey, I love kissing your mom on the lips and only her. Right? Now, i got to be careful. Those two little girls are, are tricky and sneaky. Right? They'll come, and they'll be aggressive. Right? You'll get a headbutt and a kiss somewhere and slobber all over your face. And I also want them to see is, hey, one day, one day you'll have a husband that you'll be able to kiss on the lips if you want to. That's gross. They're not allowed to date until they're about 35. But eventually, and so I'm trying to teach that. Like, that's a, that's a delight. That is a good thing. And, and so um, w with this idea of sex is a delight, um, the church has missed the boat on this for a long time. Right? I mean, back in the day, they used to put restrictions on church members. You're only allowed having sex on this day during this month. And I'm just... I'm, and then we went through a time because of all the negative ticket negativity around um, sex in our culture is sex is dirty and bad. Don't do it until you find someone and get married to and then go. Right. So it's dirty, bad. Find someone you love and then you can do it. That's not what the Bible teaches. And so we have this book, Song of Solomon. Um, we'll go through uh, chapter four. So if you have your Bibles, Song of Songs, right after Ecclesiastes chapter four. Um, I'm only going to read a few, and, and you'll see the delight. Now, for our young Casanovas in the room, you don't want to rip this and use it and make it your own. right? Don't write what Solomon writes and gives it to your girlfriend or your spouse thinking it's going to go well. Here we go. 
Chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Probably doesn't translate in our culture. Go down to verse 2. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes. They have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them is lost with its young. So this dude is praising his wife for having all of her teeth. Big deal, hundreds of years ago, right? <laughs> so then you get to chapter 4, verse 7, and this is the point. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Then if you skip on over to chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, how beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels. Um, just a heads up, don't comment on how round or not round your wife's thighs are. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Never refer to someone's belly as a heap of anything. You go on down. Verse 6, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. So I want to, to, to share this. Sex is a good thing. And if you've been hearing your whole life, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, that needs to come with an asterisk. You need to be pure, but God has designed sex within marriage to be a delight. And then I'll go one step further. We rob God when we don't give thanks for a gift that he has given. And this is what I mean. When we eat, what do we do usually before our meal? Pray. Pray. We give what? Thanks. When I bite into a steak that is fantastic, I am giving thanks to God. Now you think, oh, yes, I'm devouring the steak, but I also say, God, thank you for my taste buds. Thank you for this meal. Fantastic. I can remember um, out mowing grass. Um, it's just a beautiful day. I would give thanks to God. Nobody's around. I'm not closing my eyes. I'm on the mower, and I'm giving thanks to God for the day. Sunsets do that. God, thank you for this beautiful creation that I get to enjoy. Thank you for this day. Sex should do that within the bounds of marriage. Thank you, God, for my spouse. Thank you for this joy. Right? Your heart should overflow in praise to God for his gift. It is a delight. When uh, we played Bourbon County this year, football, we made a, a great play at the end of the game. And uh, the, the coaches were going nuts. We're all jumping and celebrating. It would have been weird as if we just made that play, got in line, and then shook hands with the other team. Nice play. Good job. Great. We won. Right? That's, that, that's strange. And yet, sometimes that's how we view sex. And, and so what happens is, when the church is saying, hey, it's not very joyful, and the world is saying, hey, this is the best thing since sliced bread, this is out and this, and, and you can do this and you can do this, uh, what we're saying is, hey, Satan has a better plan for your joy than God does. And yet what we see again and again in Scripture is God is for your joy. And your joy is essentially when you enjoy sex with the parameters God set. All right, so that is for our delight. Um, and then number three, our devotion. The, this is where I, I want us to hit just a little bit um, with, with the way things are going and, and dating in our culture um, and, and with the, the media options of, of hooking up. What happens is the world is saying is sex is just a physical act. 
And while it is a physical act, it's never just a physical act. So the Bible says, don't unite with someone physically unless you are willing to unite with them emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. Every sex act is supposed to be a uniting act. And so what happens is in high school, we'll see um, a boyfriend, girlfriend, and they, they have sex and they create these bonds that shouldn't be there. Right? They don't know each other well. They don't really even like each other, but they love having sex. And now all of a sudden, it's hard to rip apart. Why? Because sex is never just a physical act. And so that is a warning um, not to enter into it lightly. And then we keep going, and I love this. I love this passage in Proverbs. Um, it's two husbands, but it applies to, to wives as well. Um, and Proverbs, it warns us. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. So you see a design, you see a delight, but then you see a devotion. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Right? And, and then Paul says, why are you joining to a prostitute in 1 Corinthians? Right? Don't you know that two become one? And it's that idea of joining. And so what happens is in Proverbs, he's saying, hey, don't do this. Be satisfied with the wife of your youth. Now, there's some helpful advice, and this is something I've never done, uh, but I'm going to do. Um, Gary Thomas is the guy's name. Check out his prayer. He said, on the day I was married, I began praying, Lord, help me to define beauty by Lisa's body and soul inside and out. Shape my desires so that I am attracted only to her. I knew from the book of Proverbs I should take delight in my wife, not women in general. I thought that's, that's kind of a cool application of Proverbs right there. All right, and so Julianne, while physical, physically beautiful, man, her soul and how she's transforming to look more and more like Christ, like that's super attractive. Like her generosity and her selflessness and her hospitality, like that's what I'm striving for. That's what I'm looking for. And then uh, John Piper, he did a hospital visit. Check out, check out what he has to say. And I think this really gets to the point of sex. I'll never forget the pastoral visit I had with a woman whose husband had just died that morning. She had nursed him at home through a protracted and painful bout with cancer. When I walked into her living room, his corpse was still on the hospital bed that she had wheeled beside the fireplace. I stood on one, one side of the bed and she on the other as I prayed for her. Before I finished praying, I opened my eyes to see her massaging her husband's feet, patting his cheeks, rubbing his calves and hands. She must have done this innumerable times before in their marriage. I was deeply moved at what I saw, and as I drove home, I thought, this is what sex is finally about. One man and one woman, to the end, loving and caring for each other's bodies with their own bodies. That's a beautiful picture. All right, and so this is, this is one thing that's so hard for me to do. In 70 years, sex isn't going to matter to me. I'm going to be standing before God, and this is what's going to matter. Was I satisfied with Christ or not? Sex is paint on a house that's crumbling if you don't know Christ. And then I want us to go into our, our, our last part. So glorify God through being satisfied with Christ. Glorify God through sex in marriage. But then for everybody that's not married, which is a lot of us in the room, 
glorify God through striving for purity. Sex outside of God's design will do nothing but diminish our sensitivity to holiness, righteousness, and God's presence in our life. You cannot run to Christ and run from Christ at the same time. You're going in one direction. And so one thing you can do is fight. Every hunger that entices us in the flesh is an exploitation of a need that can be better met in God. This is what happens in the Garden of Eden. You guys remember that, right? Adam and Eve are in the garden. Now think about how, how well Adam and Eve had it. The best-looking pla- best woman on the planet is your wife. Ladies, the best man in the world, smartest, most handsome, strongest, best provider, is your husband. They have everything, tree after tree, anything you want to eat, perfect climate, and yet what does Satan do? Hey, check out this tree, check out this fruit. God doesn't want what's best for you. And they get closer and closer and closer until finally they agree with Satan, you know what, God doesn't want what's best for me. I'm going to eat. You have to fight for that. If you're not fighting, you're losing that battle. Right? The bell has rung. You're in the ring. Satan's going to knock you out. You've got to fight for your purity. Um, in, in his letters, uh, there's, there's a thing called the screw tape letters. Right? C.S. Lewis uh, had this make-believe that there was this demon talking to another demon on how to trip up the church how to trip up followers of Christ. And this is what he says, the devil's grand strategy against pleasure is to twist it and to get us to misuse it. Right? So food, great gift, if you eat too much, will cause heart disease and all sorts of problems. Wine, great gift, if you drink too much, drunkenness and hurt and abuse and everything. Sex, great gift, if you misuse it, hurt, it goes on and on. Right? Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are in a sense on God's ground. I know we have won many battles of the soul through pleasure, all the same, as it is his invention, not ours. He has made the pleasure. All of our research so far has not enabled us to produce one pleasure. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take pleasures which our enemy, which is God, produced at times or in ways or in degrees that he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that end to which is least natural of its maker and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. Guys, that's exactly where we are in society. Pornography offers you something that's not real. It's a diminishing pleasure. An affair never, ever delivers on its satisfaction. You can't deliver. Yet, when you see God designing marriage as the vehicle and sex within marriage, that is the flow that brings joy. So you better fight. Paul says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If you're fighting, you'll take that verse serious. There's some relationships you probably need to cancel right now. There's some phone numbers you need to get rid of. There's some buddies you need to stop hanging with. If your phones or your computers is a problem, you need to make sure you make a commitment. Hey, I'm only getting on this when i got people around me. I don't need my phone when I, I probably because of this issue. I'm not going there. You need to make no provisions for the flesh. And then uh, another way to fight. Do you not know that in a race all runners compete but only one receives a prize? Cortez, you guys had a track meet yesterday, right? How many people got first place? Two people got first place? They tied? All right, well, usually in a race, one person wins. 
In Cortez's case, we got two first places. All right, so maybe two people win a prize. So run in a way that you obtain that prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. I remember plaques that I got, the glue comes off and the thing falls off. I don't remember what the prize was for. Right? I got a football helmet, and I don't know what team it was for and what year. Falls off. Doesn't last. But God's saying, hey, there's something that lasts that you need to fight for. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box the air like I'm beating the air, but I discipline my body to keep it under control. That's really important when it comes to sexual purity. If you're just watching whatever comes on TV, you're losing. If you don't have any filters with, uh, in regards to movie or music you listen to, you're losing. I looked up some uh, of the music, and I was just going to give examples, but they're so graphic, I can't even use it as an example. It's bad. And we sing and hum to it like it's no big deal. You've got to fight. Number two, you've got to flee. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom God has given you? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Right? We look at Christ on the cross. It says, so glorify God in your body. How do I glorify God? Right? This is super important. How do I glorify God? By running from sexual immorality. Uh, there was a pastor that was working out in the gym in Houston. Right? He, he's at a Planet Fitness. He's working out. And he goes, listen, I'm not a very attractive dude, but for some reason... There was a girl in there that was attractive. She came up to me, and she started flirting with me. And I go, hey, man, I'm sorry, I'm married. And she goes, that's no problem, I am too. And she gave him his number, gave him her number. And so he took the number, and he threw it away, and he left the gym, and he canceled his membership. And he goes, because I know my heart, if I kept the number, I would have thought it had been all right to call. Maybe she needs the gospel. And she starts, he starts rationalizing. But he goes, sometimes it's better to run than to try to fight. I think that's a pretty healthy example. Right? Forget that. I'd rather find another gym and go through the inconvenience of paying different dues than possibly ruining my marriage with infidelity. How are you guys fighting? How are you guys fleeing? And then that comes to the church, friends. This is the awesome part. If you can have people speak into your life, it's powerful. So if you uh, see, uh, like if I see Phil flirting with every girl at school, I'm going to say something to him. Right? I'm like, I feel, man, guys got something better for you. Guys got something better for you. Or let's say there's a conversation, and right, and here you'll have this opportunity, I promise you, tomorrow at school. You'll hear some guy talking about some girl, and you can either be a part of the conversation or you can be part of fighting for purity. Right? So you hear a guy objectify a girl, you can either leave the conversation, you can flee, or a little bit more courage, you can say, hey guys, we got something better to talk about. Bring up March Madness, bring up NBA, bring up something else, change the subject to protect this girl who's created in the image of God, deserving of dignity and respect. That's how you can fight. So you can fight or flee, fight or flee. Now, here's the cool part. I have a lot more courage when I got people with me. So if I go in and there's a fight and I look around and I got Tracy Pope with me, I'm going in there. Or if I got Mr. Fight who happens to be a magnet for fights, I've got a little bit more courage. Right? Why? Because I got my boys with me. Right? We can handle this. If I get knocked out, I think they'll wake me up without taking a picture or a video. Right? They'll help me out. No, they're taking a video. They're taking a picture. In the same way, that's one thing the church can help with. Hey, let's pursue purity together. Our girls can help their brothers in Christ. Our guys can help their sisters in Christ. And we can pursue Jesus together. 
Husbands, we can uh, bounce ideas off. We can pray for each other. We can strengthen. We can encourage. No, you've got to be faithful to your wife. No, this is how you rejoice in the wife of your... We can do this. Let's run. Like, this is what the church should look like. Instead of thinking we got it all together and we'll hide our problems. Which leads me to our, our, our final. We, we've got to finish up. And, and I know, hey, what, after preparing this, I also know that we need to do something for the couples in the room. Because there's a lot of stuff that we need to talk to and go through that can really help... Uh, and the marriage relationship, but that'll be a different day. I, I want to leave with this, and, and this is one reason why I thought about not doing this, talking about sex. There's a lot of people in the room that have been hurt in this arena, right? Whether it's been uh, sexual abuse, sexual assault, um, whether it's mistakes in the past, there's a lot of hurt and pain and regret in this arena. And, and then this is what I noticed. In Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 and 1 John 1 9, all of these have the same thing, right? 1 John 1 9 says that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no mistake you have made that can't be covered by the cross. And, and you look at Psalm 32 and 51, the dude that wrote that had an affair and committed murder. And he's calling out to God, God, is there any room for forgiveness for me? And he says, cleanse me and I will be whiter than snow. It's this idea that your transgressions, your, your shortcomings, your falls, your regrets, your mistakes will be covered by the blood of Christ. There is nothing Jesus cannot cover. So the church should be a people running to Christ because we're messed up people, not pretending we're holier than God. And I'll close with this. I had a couple um, say they didn't want to come to church because... Uh, she was pregnant and they weren't married yet. And he goes, if I come to church, you're going to judge me. And, and here was the, the, the only thing that was different in them than in the, everybody else in the room. Everybody else in the room can hide sin. Right? You can delete browsing history. Um, you can throw, you can try to hide different relationships. Um, and that's just in, in the, the sexual issue. There's a lot of other issues that, that all of us deal with whether it's lust and greed and selfishness and jealousy. Like it just, the list goes on and on. The problem is when you get pregnant, you're showing that. But now here's the good news. In the light, there is healing. If you stay in the darkness, there is no healing. And what I see all the time, and I just got this picture. You see, God in the Old Testament, there was one person saved in Jericho. Anybody know who that was? Her name was Rahab. She was a prostitute. Then you get in the New Testament. Here's Jesus. And you want to know who he's hanging out with? Tax collectors and sinners that are known by their sin, otherwise known as prostitutes. And they would flock to Jesus. Why? Because I think their souls were satisfied finally in God, but then they also understood what forgiveness and grace looked like. All of us desperately need that. And so with all of your mess-ups and everything you've done wrong, and with the topic today, everything you've done wrong with sex in the past, in the present, and in the future, run to Christ, not from Him. There is no healing for your wounds out there. There is in Christ. And then let's pursue Jesus together. That's what I want Redemption Church to be about. I don't want us to look and judge people for, for what they've done or, or what they're into. I want us to be a people that's gracious, and committed to serving each other as we follow Christ. All right, let's pray. 
Father, I thank you for all the people in the room. Lord, this is a difficult subject, and yet you're an awesome God who gives good gifts. So Lord, I pray for the young people who are not yet married, who the world is throwing all sorts of garbage at them, who Satan's trying to trip up and stumble. I pray that you surround them with your church who will encourage and pick up and hold on to and run after. I pray that they run to Christ for their satisfaction. Father, I pray for the couples in the room. I pray that they magnify you and how they use their bodies in their marriage. I pray they see that as a joy that can be given thanks for. Father, I pray for healing because all of us in the room need it. Pray for humility. I pray for your grace to be poured out. So, Father, I pray that you move in a way that only you can move. I pray that you heal where there is hurt. I pray that you restore where there's been brokenness. Father, you're an awesome God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.